0: Welcome back to the Montgomery Company's podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Montgomery. We're glad that you're with us for another powerful and impactful episode. As you know, this is a podcast designed to help leaders go farther faster, and today we're in for a treat. Many of you are aware of who Scott Harrison is. You might even be aware of Scott's journey. It's a fascinating one. It's one that is, is still under construction. But this guy just has a, a, just an incredible story. From having success in different spheres of life, he is uh, really a powerful force for good. And, and I'm going to tell you about Scott as he joins us in today's conversation. Uh, Scott was recognized in Fortune Magazine's 40 Under 40 list, the Forbes Magazine Impact 30 list, and was recently number 10 in Fast Company's 100 Most Creative People in the Business Issue. He's currently a World Economic Forum Young Global Leader. Scott and his wife, Victoria, have two children, Jackson and Emma. He's the author of the best-selling book, Thirst, a story of redemption, compassion, and a mission to bring clean water to the world. This is a fun one. Uh, Barack Obama called Scott Harrison the kind of change that we need more of. From nightclubs in NYC to living a life on a mission in third world countries. Man, your story is amazing. We're honored to have you. God bless you. Thanks for being with us. Scott Harrison, welcome to the show. All right. Thanks for having
1: me. This will be fun.
0: This is great. Uh, I want to give a shout out to Brad Lominick, who formerly connected us. We share some friends in common, Brad Lominick, David Nurse. And man, these guys can't say enough good things about you. And I want to specifically highlight um, just the transformation in your life. You uh, didn't start out wanting to bring clean water to third world countries. You actually started out running nightclubs in NYC. You have a unique family story where you had a mom with some some health issues. Um, Can you just bring us back to maybe the early days of life for Scott Harrison?
1: Yeah, well, I think maybe my life was in three chapters. Uh, So I'll start with growing up. Uh, I was born into a middle-class family. Dad was a business guy. Uh, My mom was a writer. And when I was four years old, uh, moved into this very ugly gray house in South Jersey in a kind of very ordinary neighborhood. Uh, And the house that we had just purchased and moved into in the dead of winter had a carbon monoxide gas leak. So we all start getting these weird symptoms. You know, the windows are all closed. Uh, My mom is unpacking boxes and she's spending 24 seven in the house. Uh, I'm going to school, my dad's going to work. And on New Year's Day, 1980, my mom walks across the bedroom and she crumples to the floor. And she was kind of the proverbial canary in the coal mine, which then led to a series of blood tests. The discovery of carbon monoxide in her bloodstream and then the discovery of the carbon monoxide leak. And my dad and I bounced back. So we had some health symptoms and some problems, but mom never bounced back. And from the age of four, it's funny, I just realized this uh, uh, like two years into COVID, but my mom started wearing an N95 mask when I was four. And I never really saw my mom's face You know, from that point on. She was constantly masked. Uh, really until the end of her life because her immune system shut down. So what the carbon monoxide did was just irreparably damaged her immune system's ability to fight off anything chemical. So soap would make her sick. Perfume would make her sick, car fumes would make her sick. Uh, She was so sensitive that the ink from a new book would make her sick or the ink from a magazine. So, you know, I remember this, this vivid childhood memory of mom, the journalist still wanting to read But we would bake her books in the oven or we would lay them out in the grass in the sun for a few days to kind of, you know, outgas that. So I'd flip the pages and I'd put it back in the oven. I'd flip some more pages and put it in to kind of outgas that smell. And my mom was living in a room that was covered in tinfoil, sleeping on an army cot that was washed 20 times in baking soda. And then I would kind of knock on her door. She would open the door wearing a mask, wearing cotton gloves so as not to touch the book's print. And then she could slip the book into a special cellophane bag and read. So wow. it was a weird childhood. Wow. <laughs> uh, they actually made, they made a film about this called safe with Julianne Moore. And, uh, you know, in some ways it was like bubble boy <laughs> as well. A very different kind of film, That's but wild. Uh, only child, you know, raised in the church, playing piano yeah. on Sunday, taking care of mom. If you'd asked me what I wanted to do with my life, I would have said, I'm going to be a doctor. So, I can cure mom and other people like her. So, that was kind of act one. Yeah. Uh, didn't smoke, didn't drink, didn't sleep around, didn't cuss, you know, good, good Christian kid.
0: Well, you And then uh, New York City happens. <laughs> <laughs> your, your life takes a turn, right? Um, but before we talk about the turn, um, because yeah. you really devoted your life to service, so there's some uh, foreshadowing of your story for our listeners. Do you think there was any connection to like having to be there for your mom and, and serving? your mom that maybe kind of came full circle later in life? Like what, did, what did you learn just from you know, be, being oh, a young child, sure. having, to, having to take care of mom and, and, and tend to her?
1: Well, I liked being needed. Uh, so you know, I had a lot of confidence growing up as a kid because I was able to do things maybe a little before their time. Uh, I had this essential role as the only child uh, as a kind of co-caregiver with my father. And you know, I got a lot of independence out of that uh, growing up. And, you know, at that time, it was all kind of, you know, I'm going to be the good Christian kid. I'm going to go be a doctor. And, you know, I took a pretty long 10 year detour away from that, but really did come back full, full circle, I think in a much different way, being able to opt back in as an adult without being told what to do. Yeah. I mean, I'm an Enneagram eight. Yeah, I I see that in you, I don't really like being told what to to do.
0: I see that in you. And I know a lot of eights. I'm a three, but I have many friends um, like like you. And, um, and let, so let's move on to kind of the, the second chapter, right? So we've got early, yeah. ch- early childhood is kind of the backdrop for the first chapter where you learned about service and, and, and being of service to others. Um, in the second chapter, you actually become one of the top promoters in New York City. You're involved in, in some nightclubs and you became a, a, well-known, a well-known source of promotion and entertainment. And um, uh, yeah. I'd, I'd love for you to just talk to us about how how you went from like being the the good, you know, Christian kid that never got into trouble to all of a sudden being like this, this figure in a world of entertainment and partying.
1: Well, I think I woke up at 18 and said, now it's my turn to break all the rules. Uh, I don't want to be told what to do. Uh, I'm, I'm an adult now and I'm going to insert, assert my independence and move to New York City. You know, I initially was in a band, a rock band. So, idea number one was to make it rich and famous, travel the world, opening up for you yeah, <laughs> too. It sold out Love arenas. Uh, the band broke up a couple months into it because we we all hated each other, so <laughs> that that didn't last long. But I learned that you know if you wanted to rebel, there was this phenomenal job in New York City where you could rebel in style uh, if you could pack nightclubs full of beautiful, famous people. And, you know, I mean, the idea of being the club promoter (laughs) who decided who came in uh, sitting with, you know, the rapper of the moment, the movie stars of the moment, the models of the moment and drinking and partying for free, uh, actually getting paid, you know, really great money to do all that seemed seemed like uh, like the ticket. (laughs) So at 19, you know, two years before I was even legally allowed in clubs, I start promoting I start building a list uh, and I start, you know, moving from club to club, you know, bringing this group of people, you know, who either have a lot of money to spend. I mean, we could we could sell a table for ten thousand dollars in alcohol. You know, I mean, we're talking Crazy. about thousand dollars champagne bottles, twenty five dollar cocktails. You know, if you wanted to buy a wow. bottle of Absolute, which cost us, I don't know, maybe eleven bucks, we'd charge you five hundred bucks to sit at the table and drink that $11 bottle. So, you know, I I thought I was living the dream. I'm flying around to fashion week in Paris and Milan. I'm dating the girls that are on cover of fashion magazines. And, you know, I'm flying private in the back of other people's jets. I've got the BMW. I've got the grand piano in my New York apartment. I've got the Rolex watch. And, uh, you know, I've arrived. And over the next 10 years, I'd worked at 40 different clubs. And, picked up every vice that you might imagine would come with the territory. So two pack a day, Marlboro red habit, sometimes three packs if we were doing cocaine or ecstasy or MDMA or, you know, whatever the flavor drug of the, of the month was, uh, gambling problems, pornography problems, uh, strip club problems. I mean, really kind of this descent into dark degeneracy Mm. and hedonistic living. And, you know, woke up one day at, at, 28 and half my body went numb. And I started having these just inexplicable health uh, issues. And I remember my business partner is like, dude, it's, it's like amazing. You're even alive. I mean, the amount of drugs that you've done, I mean, what you have wow. put your body through, you know, no wonder, you know, half your body is numb. Like it's, you know, it's like crying mea culpa, you know? Yeah. But what, what happened for me there was like in a moment I was faced with mortality. And I'd just been living like I was going to live forever. Uh, not, you know, kind of living for the present only. And I remember saying, like, what if I have a brain tumor? Like, what if I'm going to die next month? Do I believe in heaven and hell? You know, do I believe any of this stuff from Sunday school and church? Like, if I do, I know where I'm going. <laughs> you know, it's it's, yeah. it's not St. Peter that, uh, that that's, that's welcoming me. And <laughs> mm. so... So that really started a pretty serious cathartic kind of soul searching journey, which took about four or five months and led at the end of that to a really radical uh, decision to sell everything I owned, quit smoking, quit drinking, quit drugging, quit gambling, you know, vow to never look at a pornographic image you know, for the rest of my life and kind of try to reboot my life and start over at 28. And, you know, and I joke, this is like the farthest thing from a pivot. You know, this was, this was in no way a pivot or course correction. This is like, find every single thing I'm saying and doing and thinking, and then do the exact opposite, you know, 180 degree turnaround was, was needed. And, you know, I did manage to to quit the stuff and uh, applied my, my big idea was I was going to tithe one of the 10 years that I'd selfishly wasted and I was going to give it to God and I was going to give it to service and see where that would lead me. You know, could I be useful in a different context? And, uh, you know, the first 10 charities that I applied to as a volunteer all turn me down because, you know, world vision is not looking for a reformed <laughs> nightclub promoter, <laughs> you know, in, in any capacity, doctors without borders, you know, it doesn't really know what yeah. to do with like you know, a guy selling bottles to models. Uh, And bankers. So I was really fortunate that this one organization called Mercy Ships wrote me and said, um, if you're willing to pay us $500 a month, if you're willing to go live in the poorest country in the world, Liberia, uh, which had just escaped a 14-year brutal civil war, then you can join our mission as a photojournalist, as a volunteer photojournalist. And, you know, I I was not technically a photojournalist. But I had put together a blog with some, some pretty good photos as a hobby. And I was a pretty good writer. Um, you know, I'd been writing for the, the local paper when I was 14 or 15. And I convinced this group that I could be useful. And then my entire life changed uh, in, in um, the summer of uh, the year I was 28 years old. So this would be 2004 when I joined this medical humanitarian mission. On a hospital ship, on a mm. massive ocean cruise liner that had been gutted and turned into a state-of-the-art hospital and set foot in Africa for the first time um, on, this, on this mission. And I remember getting fantastically drunk the night before because I kind of knew that this was going to be it. And I had to go out with, with one last harass. So I smoked 60 cigarettes and, you know, drank eight or nine beers. It turned up the next morning reeking of smoke, you know, my head hurting. And, uh, and then there was just something, you know, symbolic or or prophetic about, you know, I was going to walk up the gangway of a ship and then the gangway was going to lift. And then I was going to sail away to a new continent and a new life and a new kind of calling. And that, I guess that started, uh, act three. Yeah.
0: Starts chapter three. So you have this life changing experience. You, you head to Liberia and isn't it a true that we're always like one moment away, one one experience away from a different life? You know, and yeah, and this is <laughs> this is really the story of of your journey. You know, you you go to Liberia, and I, I just want for you to talk for a second, Scott, in just raw, uh, in, in a raw and candid way about what you experienced in Liberia that was so life changing. Let's maybe start Act Three, from, yeah. from that perspective.
1: Well, so the ship that I was living on, there are about 350 volunteer crew, uh, many of them medical crew, doctors, surgeons, nurses. And, you know, it's an amazing idea. Let's get some of the highest qualified medical professionals from all around the world to donate their vacation time. And instead of going on vacation, come to Africa for two weeks or four weeks or six weeks and, and operate for free. So that was the idea. And uh, I knew that we had 1500 available surgery slots to fill. So we'd be able to give out, you know, a, a card for a cleft lip surgery or to remove a tumor or help somebody with leprosy or, you know, these different conditions that we, we treated. And I'll never forget. So my third day in West Africa, you know, I've never even, smelled Africa, seen it. I mean, it's just, a, it's a wonderful assault on the census. So I'm so excited. And I learned that the government has given us the soccer stadium, the football stadium in the center of the city to triage the patients that we would hope to help. And a small advance team had been in advance of the ship's arrival had been posting these flyers all around the country with some of the conditions, pictures of people with the afflictions that we would treat and you know i remember i mean these are like pictures of tumors and burns and flesh-eating disease i mean stuff i'd never even seen before uh lots of cleft lips lots of cleft faces cleft palates and uh i remember thinking like is it possible that there's 1500 people that are going to have these conditions and i remember getting up at five in the morning grabbing my two nikon d1x cameras put on hospital scrubs with everybody else jumped in this convoy of land rovers that were snaking from the ship, the port to the stadium. And as we approached the stadium, we saw 5,000 plus people standing in the parking lot waiting for us to open the doors and begin seeing people. Wow. And that was a, that was a powerful moment, you know, Jordan realizing, Oh my gosh, we're going to send over 3000 sick people home without the chance Of seeing a doctor. I later learned many of those people had walked for more than a month from neighboring countries with their kids. You know, imagine walking 30 days with your sick child to then realize you're too far towards the back of the line and you got to walk a month home without seeing a doctor. So that was a really powerful moment. And and one of the, you know, I remember crying a lot that day, quite honestly, because then, you know, you're seeing people with missing eyes and ears and you know there was some of the um some of the remnants of the war you know where people had, had been hacked up i mean we saw some tough stuff yeah. and and uh you know one of the doctors said to me you know scott focus on the hope focus on what we're here to do and you know, really focus on the 1500 people who were going to be able to to help and uh and 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 i did i tried to take that advice yeah.
0: well it's clear that god convicted your heart you know that there was there was a need for you there was a- there's a way to be purposeful, right? Um, just like you were with with your mother uh, so many years prior. And um, you know, I want to stay on this this theme of a moment in an experience because when when you turned 31 sure. years old, there was there was another moment um that sort of gave birth to this really exciting journey that you're still on and, and you decided, and somebody needs to hear this, because there's somebody thinking of something they that, that, something you want to do. There's a there's a leader yep. listening, they're thinking you know, I'd love to rally people. I'd love to get people together. I want to start a movement or I want to take initiative. And, and, and that's what you did. And, and I'm sure there's some twists and turns in between and we're leaving out some important details and feel free to fill in Scott at, at, as you wish. But at 31, you decided you were going to donate your, your 31st birthday to this, and this important cause of, of clean water. And let me just yeah. pause there and, and let you take over. Uh, cause this is powerful. Well, yeah.
1: So I ended the year in Liberia. I signed up for a second year because I just didn't know what was next. And it was really in that second year that I got off the ship. I spent more time in the rural areas and I saw the water that people were drinking. And really for the first time in my life, I saw children drinking disgusting, contaminated brown, viscous water. You know, water that I wouldn't give to an animal. And literally that was all that half of the country had. So I learned these two really powerful things. Number one, I learned half of the country, right? We're talking about 5 million people. So, you know, two and a half million people were drinking dirty water every day. And half of the disease in the country was because people were drinking dirty water and didn't have access to sanitation and, and, and hygiene, like washing their hands. So, you know, for me, it was this like big aha. Well, here we are doing these fifteen hundred after the fact surgeries, but the most basic health need isn't met for half the, the people living in this country. That was, that was kind of how I landed on water. And I remember the chief medical officer who was, who was my mentor at the time, uh, I just wanted to spend as much time with this guy as I could, you know, said something to the effect of, if you really cared about global health, you know, you wouldn't help us build the next hundred million dollar hospital ship necessarily you would just go and get everybody in the world clean water Mm. so simple like Mm. you'd be the greatest doctor that the world had ever seen if you just got every human on the planet the most basic need for health and for life and i don't know jordan i mean i was 30 there was something so simple about that idea i'm like well okay i'm gonna try yeah (laughs) i'll go back to new york city and i'll try totally so so that was kind of the backdrop and then i was about to turn 31 And I said, all right, well, I'm going to start a charity. I'm going to call it Charity Water (laughs) because that was the only idea I had. Uh, A charity that helps people get water. And how am I going to raise money? And uh, the first thing I did to raise money was get a nightclub donated, get open bar donated, and then invite everybody that I knew to come to my 31st birthday party. But they had to donate at least 20 bucks at the door to get in. And I remember 700 people came that night. We collected $15,000 in cash in this big plexi box. You know, we counted it three times. We documented it. And then we, we took 100% of those donations immediately to a refugee camp in northern Uganda. And we did our first well. And then we fixed wow. a couple other wells. And then we sent the photo proof and satellite images, like GPS coordinates, of these wells back to the 700 people that came. And we said, you came, your $20 made a difference. People are drinking clean water because of you. And wouldn't you want to do that again? And that was, uh, you know, that was $700 million ago and 15 years ago. And really the start of, you know, what's, what's now been, you know, a community that spans 150 countries uh, with charity water supporters and um, you know, crazy, uh, um, that, crazy. That, that's been that's been continuing to grow. Um, really from that very simple idea.
0: Crazy. And and I know you're quick to give many other people credit. Um, but when you started this journey, Scott, I believe it was one out of six people in the world
1: yep. were
0: drinking regularly contaminated. A
1: billion people water at the time. Right? A billion yeah. people. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and 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 where are we at today? So obviously the the world's grown. Yep. But now we're the like the world
1: has grown and we've made progress. So we're now down to uh, one in 10 humans on the planet and 771 million people. That's impact. So, yeah. so it, it, it is, but, but let me just say like, it's also crazy that crazy. right now as we record this, two Americas full of people around the world, 770 million people, right? One out of 10 humans does not have clean water to drink. I mean, we are yeah. literally landing rockets, you know, on platforms in raging seas. You know, we're talking about colonizing other planets and yet 10% of the people on planet earth don't have water to drink, don't have clean water to drink. So, uh, I mean, we're, we, you know, we, we think that a lot more progress needs to be made and, and a lot quicker.
0: Well, you've had all these crazy experiences, right. As you've worked toward that progress and, and it is crazy. Like, how could that be that? Like we have, we have advancements in so many um, areas and, and behind so many important causes yet, this most basic need is, is, uh, you know, so many people are falling short of it being met. Um, you've been able to experience like some some crazy miracles. Some, there's some radical stories uh, that have both been inspiring, but also very convicting. Um, you met a, a, a young girl kind of after the fact. You, you actually met her in, in maybe sort of a unique way and heard about her story. Uh, she was nine years old. Her name is Rachel. Um, yep. And I want you to tell this story because this this is inspiring. It's 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 a bit uh hard to hear but it's really inspiring. And this is a leader where this is a a podcast where we help leaders take action and I think this is going to move some
1: people. So can you tell us about Rachel Scott? Well, maybe just going back a little bit to the the backdrop of that. So Charity Water started with a birthday party, which was a very simple action, right? Any I mean anybody could do that. Like, yeah. hey, I'm having a party yeah. and don't bring me any gifts. Uh, just make a donation to a cause I care about. So that was day one of Charity Water. started with $15,000. And the next year, you know, I said, well, how do we improve on this? I don't really want to ever throw another party again like this. Just the nature of that is not scalable. But what if I kind of kept with the birthday idea and I donated my birthday and I told everybody, stay home, no party. I don't need a tie or a wallet or a gift card. Right, I've got everything I need. You know, what if I could donate my birthday and other humans would get clean water as a result of that. So I kind of came up with this idea of donating your birthday or, you know, give up your birthday. And then I thought the sticky marketing idea would be that I'd ask for my age in dollars. So I'd ask for $32 from everybody I knew. Most people I knew had $32 they could donate. Had they come to the party anyway, they would have spent that on taxis and tipping. And so that kind of launched this next iteration, and I got—I think I got 90 other people that September. So year one of Charity Water, to also donate their birthday at different ages, and interestingly, we raised together 150,000. So we 10x the individual partner, uh, the the individual party um, with no cost. Um, then a little later, Rachel heard about this idea. And she was eight and she decided to I'd actually, her church had raised a bunch of money in Seattle. I'd gone out to speak at the church and she was in the audience. And at the end, I kind of was challenging everybody. Hey, y'all have a birthday. One simple thing you can do is donate your next birthday. So Rachel donates her birthday and uh, she set a goal of $300, which at the time would help 10 people get clean water to drink. And she Donates, you know, she cancels her birthday party. She doesn't accept any gifts and she's asking for $9 donations. She raises 220. So she falls short of her goal and she's bummed out. And, you know, tells her mom something to the effect of, I'm going to try, I'm going to do it again next year and I'm going to try harder. Well, a couple of weeks after her birthday campaign, she's killed in a terrible car crash. And there was a 20 car pileup on the interstate she was the only fatality when a, uh, a tractor trailer lost control and slammed into the back seat, crushing her in the back of her car where her mom was driving and her sister was in the front. And I was in the Central African Republic at the time with, uh, with our drilling team. And I remember landing back at JFK, turning my phone on, BlackBerry at the time, and uh, her pastor had texted me and, and told me of the tragedy and said this little girl's last wish was to help people get clean water through charity water. And he said, you know, can you reopen her campaign and I'm going to make sure everybody gives $9 in my church. And we did. I mean, I remember, you know, walking, we were living in a fourth floor walk up at the time and walking to the stairs, sitting down on the couch, opening up the laptop, my wife and I donating that $80 to get her to the 300 bucks, like tears just streaming down our faces. And then this thing just started to spread, you know, the, compassion, the, you know, the, the act of generosity from a nine year old, you know, who should want things. I mean, kids, right. Kids are supposed to want things. It's the adults that are supposed to be self-sacrificial and not need anything. And uh, you know, she inspired so many people through that simple action that um, it went from the church community to the wider Seattle community started spreading across the country, the New York Times picked it up, the morning shows picked it up. Uh, And then it started spreading through Europe and down into Africa. And people in Africa started donating $9 for this little girl that wanted to help people like them in their country get access to clean water. And she wound up raising $1.2 million in the aftermath of her death. And uh, I, I had the opportunity on the one year anniversary the day she died in that car crash to take her mom and her grandparents uh, village to village in Ethiopia, where thousands of people had clean water. And they got to meet, you know, hundreds of the children who were now drinking clean water because Rachel had given up her birthday. One of the coolest things about how the story ends or really doesn't end, is a few years later, we looked at that donor list and we saw that so many people that had given to Rachel's campaign. Then also followed her lead and donated their birthdays that another $2 million was raised. Wow. So, you know, from a seed of, you know, from a vision of $300, you know, again, she had to take the action. She had to actually do it. Over $3 million was was raised from that. Um, impacting over a hundred thousand people with access to clean water. So,
0: well, and, and, um, and Scott, yeah. your, your faithfulness, you know, as a part of that story and how God's used you, right. The power of small moments and the power of transformation and, in experience. And, um, you, you go back, you work backwards, right. And you start to think about, well, if I wouldn't have gone on the trip to, you know, Liberia, had I not had this, this moment where I read A.W. Tozar because my dad gave me a book <laughs> and I had a, this sort of life changing, you know, moment, um, just really cool, man. Just to think about the impact of your story and the power of all these small moments. Um, I want you to make this real for us, because uh, I, and I, I want you to maybe just tell one more story, and then we're gonna get, get yeah. into some application before we land the plane. Um, this work is is I think it, I think at points in time, maybe it's even been more real for you uh, than what you were prepared for. You you met uh, a, a man in Ethiopia that told you a really powerful story about a young woman. Yeah. Who spilled some water? I'll, I just I'm gonna yeah. pause there. And let you take over. This is this is really powerful. Could could you fill in the fill in the rest of the story?
1: Yeah. So you know I mentioned 771 million people don't have water, and that's a, that's a a number that's really difficult to connect with. Um, it's also I mean it's difficult to connect with any mind-numbing global statistic. It's even more difficult because, you know, I'll dare say 99.9% of the people listening have never had to drink dirty water in their whole life. So you actually never had the experience of 10% of the planet. You know, you're in the 90%. You were born into that. Right. You've never walked six hours for water. Right. So, you know, you mentioned Ethiopia. So I've been to Ethiopia 31 times now. This is a country I know well. I love, um, we've, we've invested a lot of money there for millions of people over the years. And on one of these trips, I remember I was staying in a crappy, like $6 a night hotel room, you know, pretty deep up in the North. Uh, And this hotel owner recognized me and came out and said, Hey, let me tell you the story. He said, I'm, I'm from a a village. It's very remote. It's hours from here. And he said, all the women would walk for water when I was growing up. And he said, they'd walk eight hours, uh, you know, and you're thinking kind of four hours out and four hours back to you know, some faraway source. And he said, uh, there was this one woman in my village at the end of her eight-hour walk, right before she reached her home, she slipped and she fell, and she spilled all of her water. You know, she stumbled on the path. And she was carrying the water in this clay pot, which was also a valuable asset of the family. So she watches her pot smash. She watches eight hours of work undone. And he said, she took a rope and she climbed a tree next to this path and she tied a noose around her neck. She tied it to the tree and she jumped. He said she hung herself. And then he said, the work you're doing is important. And he walked back into the kitchen. I remember thinking, BS, no way. You know, you tell the international aid worker a shocking story, right? You know, this is this is a... Uh, you know, this is kind of urban myth. So I went back to New York and I remember sharing it with my wife and, you know, it just nagged at me, Jordan. I, I remember writing an email to our local partner. I said, hey, can um, you go back to that hotel, find out where this guy's village is. You do me a favor, will you, will you make the three-hour trip and, and tell me if the story's true? And a couple weeks later, I got an email back saying, yeah, I, I visited. And um, this, the woman's name was Letakiros Hailu. And, um, and then, uh, I remember, you know, it just came at a time where I, I also needed to kind of emotionally, viscerally reconnect with the work. I've been doing a ton of domestic travel. I've been doing a lot of speaking and fundraising. And, uh, I asked my wife, I said, you know, how do you feel if I just live in this village for a week, you know, completely off the grid, uh, there's no cell coverage or anything like that. And I, I'll hike out there. And, um, my wife said, fine. So I wound up flying back to Addis and flying up to the north. Turned out it was a nine hour walk, not three hours. Uh, and finally arrived in the village, found about 3,000 people living on a plateau with no water. And I spent the next week learning about the conditions in the village, learning about Letikiros's story. And I met her mom. I met her best friend who walked with her that day. And there's wow. a fork in the road. And And her friend headed towards her house and she headed, Letakiros headed towards her house. And finally that, you know, I saw where they got the water, which was this terrible source. It wasn't even clean at the bottom of a ravine, a steep ravine. And at the end, they took me to the tree where they found her body right next to this path. And, uh, you know, I remember, I I didn't know until I got there, I'd assumed that this was a woman at the end of her life that had, been walking her whole life and just grew weary what i found out when i got to the village and and lived there for a week was she was 13 when she died she was a teenage girl and you know there was this frail tree you know that barely looks like it would even hold a 13 year old's body and i remember asking her friend you know why do you think she killed herself like why not go back for water the next day and her friend, you know, this is all translated, but her friend said, shame, shame. She would have been ashamed to face her family because not only had she spilled the water that they needed, she had broken the clay pot, which was this, this valuable asset. And in desperation, this 13 year old girl, you know, hung herself and the elders found her swinging from, from a tree. Uh, I remember visiting her grave, which was this pile of rocks behind a a church and talking to the priest who gave her her funeral service. And uh, I came back from that trip fired up, angry, you know, not on my watch, like not on my watch are our children, you know, hanging themselves from trees if I can do anything about it. And, you know, that was a real, real animating factor to get on the next 500 planes and, you know, go make the next 500 speeches.
0: Man, but it underscores the importance of your work and also the the commodity that that water is right for for so many people I mean, it's commodity for us and it's 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 necessary but it's 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 a real commodity for so many in the world that underscores um the the important work that you're doing scott so um somebody listening to this and again maybe maybe today's podcast episode is just timely for one person who's thinking about taking action taking initiative i know a whole bunch of people are inspired but there might really be somebody, Scott, who is thinking about um, uh, taking initiative and getting behind a really important cause. It might, it might be this cause, and I certainly want uh, you to tell us how we can get involved in Charity Water. Um, but for the person who's got like that stirring in their heart and they're feeling convicted and they want to step out and do something significant, could you maybe just speak to that person or share some advice uh, with the person that wants to step out in faith and maybe do something that's unconventional or different?
1: I mean, I think it all starts with simple action. You know, there's so many people that dream about a life change or getting out of a job that they hate, and they just never take that first step. Uh, I mean, I had no idea how to build or run an international aid organization, but I did know how to throw a party (laughs) and ask people to give 20 bucks, and that felt achievable. And when we had that first $15,000, then we raised 50, and then we raised 100, and then you know, then we built a website and we started taking donations. So it, you know, if I think of the early days of charity water, it was a flurry of activity, right? It was an idea to action in such a short cycle and not everything worked, but we kept stumbling upon things that did work and did have traction or did have product market, you know, fit. And then we would do more of those things. So, you know, I mean, to be, to be honest, I mean, the, in the early days, they were 80 to a hundred hour weeks. I wasn't married. I didn't have kids back then. Everybody was just working like crazy with passionate conviction and energy to create something out of nothing. And, you know, one day you turn around and, you're like, well, I guess we kind of did. <laughs> yeah, you know, this wow, is real. Wow, well, we raised hundred million dollars last year. I guess I guess it's real. <laughs> you know, there's thousands of people working on this project around the world. But I think you know we're. I, it, it all starts with a compelling vision, you know, or a purpose mm. for your life. Or you know, water was just really clear for me. Not on my watch. You know, I could I was selling bottles of water for ten dollars in clubs. Crazy. The people who wouldn't even open the water. Cause they were drinking booze instead. So, you know, I, I, wow. I feel lucky to have kind of stumbled upon the issue that I could commit a life to, you know, or a, a life of intentional work towards. And, and then I don't know, like, you know, I'm still at it. I mean, We're in year 16 now and we're all working really hard and I'm not working 80 hours a week anymore. I'm coaching baseball, you know, for my yeah. seven-year-old yeah. team. And, you know, the rhythms are, are different. Um, but you know, I think, I think you really have to step out and, and start and try stuff. And so many people just feel paralyzed by, you know, I have this idea, but I don't have the time or I wouldn't know how to start.
0: Well, I love what you said about, you know, not really knowing how to start a company, but you knew how to throw a party. And in our organization, we always say, build the plane as you fly it, get it off the ground, take messy action. It doesn't have to be perfect. Done is better than perfect than, Sometimes you just got to take a chance.
1: Um, yeah. I mean, Seth Godin has been saying, you know, talking about this for years, like, ship it. Like, you just need to ship it. Yeah. Come on. So, you know, even, <laughs> even my wife, my wife, my wife uh, coaches nonprofits now online. Yeah. And, you know, helping them market and scale. And, you know, sometimes she'll just deliberate. I'm like, just ship it. It's fine. It's good enough. You know, in the time that ship you it. can spend to perfect something, you know, just put it out there and now move on to the next project. How do people get involved with you? So there's some people that, are inspired, um, you, you, you cause
0: them to take action today. There's also some of those same people that wanna get involved. They wanna get behind Charity Water and be a part of the important work that you're doing to save people's lives and offer clean water to, to the rest of the world. How, how do they jump in and get involved in, in this uh,
1: important work, Scott? I think the easiest way uh, is actually where a lot of the growth of the organization and our impact has been coming from, which is a, a community called The Spring. And think of this like Netflix or Disney Plus or Spotify or Amazon Prime, except you don't get anything <laughs> every month. You get no music and no movies and no you know, news and no free shipping that now is like within six minutes, it seems. Um, but 100% of what people give goes directly to help people get clean water. We didn't really talk about that, but Charity Water pioneered this 100% model 15 years ago. So all of the overhead for the organization is raised separately in a separately audited bank account from 130 families. That's allowed millions of people to give in the purest way. It's incredible. Um, So that's a a really unique business model. So when people give, you know, $30 a month or $40 a month or $10 a month, whatever they're able to, 100%, even a payback of the credit card fees incurred, 100% of what they give goes directly to the field. Um, And, you know, look, Disney Plus went from, I think it was zero to a hundred million paying subscribers in a year. I mean, you know, we're, we're trying to get to a million (laughs) to, to start and, and surely, you know, one one hundredth of the people who could sign up for the Mandalorian or, you know, Boba Fett or the Disney catalog could care about clean drinking water for humans. And especially if they could see transparently how that money is making an impact. So uh, there's also a great video. uh, If you could just go to the spring.com um, there's a video now there that's had like 70 million views, which is kind of a short version of the, the charity water story. And uh, that's one way people can get involved. And then every once in a while, people will sponsor an entire community for $10,000. Someone will actually wow. drill a whole well for 250 people. We've got a lot of small businesses do that, a lot of families, a lot of entrepreneurs. So that's kind of the you know, the next step up. Um, if somebody's you know, getting to the end of the year and says, well, wow, our company could help a whole village get water.
0: Well, if you're, if you're listening to this conversation you're driving down the road in your car and you're, you're listening through, uh, uh, one of the many platforms and you're thinking, gosh, I, I can't remember all of this. We're going to put all the links in the show notes. So, um, so you can go, uh, check out charity water and, and join the mission. Um, and the important work that Scott and his team are doing. And and I, I love the model, uh, behind the mission because you're right. So many people are thinking, okay, when I donate, what percent of my donation actually goes toward the work and, and uh, 100% of, of the donation in this case goes toward the, the mission and toward the effort. Um, I want to end this way, Scott. We want to honor your time. And I know we have just a few minutes left. Um, I've heard you say this before. You
1: said, don't be afraid of work that has no end. What does that mean to you? Yeah, it's from an old, uh, it's, it's a it's a quote somebody sent me like uh, close to 15 years ago from a New York City bodega window. And... It's from an ancient rabbinic text. And I guess what that means to me is, you know, some of these big problems do feel almost insurmountable at some point. You know, Charity Water has helped 15 million people now directly get clean water. You know, now that's 830 Madison Square Gardens full of people, right? It's 800 stadiums full of people. But you put that against the 771, we've done 150 of the work that needs to be done. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, what I love about that is that, that idea of like this never ending work and, you know, are we ever going to get enough water to enough people? That kind of used to scare me. And then, you know, now I find it almost exhilarating because I imagine this day when everybody does have clean water on the planet. I mean, this is a solvable problem. Like we can do this and other orgs are stepping up and governments are stepping up and donors are stepping up, right? So we get to this day when we kind of celebrate, you know, world water victory. You know, are we going to drop the mic and try and go get rich? No, I mean, we would take everything we've learned over decades. We would take this generous community of donors and supporters from all around the world, right? Which would be millions, if not tens of millions strong at that time. And we would ask the question, what other good could we do? How about hunger? Are there still people that are going to bed hungry? And how about shelter? Are there people who don't have a roof over their head who aren't safe? You know, Let's go tackle one of these other basic needs, or basic human needs. So, you know, and I think if you, it's really about like the intention of your life Are you're trying to use your time and your talent and your money in the service of others. Mm. Are you looking around the world saying people are needlessly suffering here in our local community, here in the global community, and I can help, right? Well, then that never ends. There is no finish line to that. You know, you don't ever get to drop the mic. Uh, right. There's always right. need out there. And the more you give, the more you give, you know, it's almost like yeah. becomes like the, the more unselfish you are, the more unselfish you become. Come on, man. Good. The more generous you are, the more generous you become. It's like a muscle that gets worked out. So yeah, that, that's kind of what that means to me. So I, I, I embrace the idea of, you know, working on a problem that, you know, we will never probably re- we will never reach a point on earth when no human being is suffering who we can't help. We can't stop that suffering.
0: Amen. That's a good word. I once had a mentor who said, living is giving and you've been living and we thank you for your work and your service and your inspiration. And um, yeah, I mean, I just, I praise God for how he's used you in the lives of many. And I know your work is uh, far from, from done. So um, any final words uh, that you want to share with our
1: listeners, Scott, before we, we sign off, just start. <laughs> if you've got that big burning idea in you, uh, you, you know, no one was less qualified to, you know, lead a, a movement that helps millions of people get clean water than a former nightclub promoter. <laughs> You know, really, <laughs> I mean, love it. So I just, I'm a big believer in people that are driven by a passionate idea that go figure it out. You know, a friend of mine, uh, Marie, Marie Forleo wrote a book, like, I think it was called Everything is Figure yeah. You know, and, and I, I love that. Like, just go figure it out. Start, learn from, you know, the first couple actions that you took and then modify and then do more stuff in the, in the service of that vision of that clear vision. Just start, figure it out, take messy action, build the plane as you fly it. Scott, you are
0: uh, an author, a speaker, a thought leader, a philanthropist, and somebody who's making a supersized difference in this world. And we know your time is valuable, man. So I just want to say thank you on behalf of the uh, entire Montgomery Company team for joining us uh, for uh, this precious uh, precious hour that I know is going to impact and serve a lot of people, man. It's been a joy. And I look forward to staying in touch for many years to come. You should know that we are behind you and we are behind the mission. God bless you. Thanks for being on the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It's been fun.
0: This has been another episode of the Montgomery Company's podcast and we just wanted to once again say thanks to Scott Harrison. Thanks for who you are, how you're leading, the work that you're putting forth in this world that's creating such a significant impact in the lives of many. We also want to say thank you to uh, John Choate and James Roth of Storyline Multimedia for your continued impact and all the work that you do behind the scenes to make these episodes Go. If you're a follower of our uh, show, thanks for joining us. Um, Gosh, it would mean so much if you'd share, like, or subscribe to this podcast in an effort that we might be able to move the mission of impact here at Montgomery Companies forward. And for that, we say thank you. Have a wonderful day. God bless. Be you. Until next time, keep working hard.